Hello and happy Sunday again, everybody. It's great to see you on yet another Lord's Day. What a gift it is to gather yet again. We're going to be back in the Psalms this afternoon. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in Psalm 28 today. Props to anyone here who may cry, wait a second, I thought we were supposed to be in Psalm 27. The answer to that is you are indeed correct. Uh, Due to a scheduling issue last week with our guest preacher, as well as Pastor James being away on PhD work, here we are, Psalm 28, and we'll be looking forward to returning to Psalm 27 as the next sermon in our series. You'll find that on page 460 of the Bibles provided, and I'm very excited to hear from God's Word together. Action items... Every good leader or manager knows how crucial they are and how to employ them. Essentially, when you come together for a meeting or for a huddle at your job or really any organization, you're coming together for a specific purpose. You're coming together to accomplish something. You're moving a project towards a specific goal. And so you leave that meeting with action items. So-and-so is going to contact this person. This person is going to make sure this gets done, and so on and so forth. You're not just coming together to meet for the sake of meeting in and of itself, although some of you might in your daily jobs, and I am sorry for that. You're not just coming to learn some nice things, but nothing ever happens of it. No, you meet to do. You huddle to act like a quarterback calling a huddle. He's calling a specific play. Here's the situation, and here's what we need to do in light of it. Not, hey everyone, we're getting destroyed. Ready, break. Even today in our meeting right now, we would do well to make sure we leave here with action items. And that's exactly what we're going to look to do today. What actions should Christian take when feeling downcast, when feeling burdened or anxious about life in this fallen world? What should Christians do, particularly when we experience evil at the hands of others? Or when it seems like all we keep seeing in this world, time after time, evil keeps prevailing? Ultimately, what should Christians do in times of trouble? And this brings us to Psalm 28 this afternoon, where King David is likely facing uh, severe charges brought against him. In fact, ones that are potentially life-threatening. And David has his back up against the wall. Every reason to freak out. And it's here we have Psalm 28. I'm going to go ahead and read it now as you follow along. This is God's Word. It says, Of David, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those that go down into the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands up toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. 
Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Well, I have three points for you today, friends, from today's text. What actions should Christians take in the midst of adversity? What should Christians do in times of trouble? Point number one, appeal to God's character. Appeal to God's character. Point number two, trust in God's justice. And point number three, rejoice in God's deliverance. And my prayer today is that we would all find ourselves refreshed by the Spirit of God as we leave here with a renewed hope of redemption. Amen? Amen. Point number one, appeal to God's character. So again, David finds himself in a time of great distress. Uh, We can't know for sure exactly what he's going through at the time that he wrote this. I know Calvin, among others, believe it's indeed likely that the persecutions he's talking about, the persecutions he's experiencing, are the ones from Saul. So for any visitors here who perhaps aren't familiar with the biblical storyline, David was the king of Israel about 3,000 years ago. Uh, one of the greatest kings to ever live. He was also an unlikely king in that he didn't really fit the mold of what you'd probably expect. Uh, But what really set him apart was that he loved God and he obeyed God. He was known as the man after God's own heart. And David, during his rise, was being ridiculed. He was being chased by the first king of Israel. That's Saul. And no matter what David did... No matter how much good he did, Saul was like this traveling shadow. Saul was following him around that would not let David find peace in who God was calling him to be as Saul's successor, as the anointed and godly king. And so David is feeling totally on his own right now, as I'm sure many of us have felt before, and perhaps some even do right now. David has no hope apart from God's intervention. David's flailing like one dropped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean whose only hope is for just somebody to come and rescue him. And so what does David do in this situation? What is David's action item in the midst of despair? Well, he does exactly what he ought to do. He cries out to God. He says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. So point number one here is titled, Appeal to God's Character, because look what David is doing. He says, my rock, in verse one. In verse two, he says, hear my pleas for mercy. And then at the end of that verse, he says, lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. He's appealing to God's strength, God's mercy, and God's holiness. 
And notice, his crying out to God is his first response. It's not his last resort after he's tried everything else. It's his knee-jerk reaction. One commentator notes that for David, a time of trouble was a time for concentration on the Lord. I wonder, friends, in your times of hardship, in our times of struggle, in our times of desperation, honestly ask yourself, what is your knee-jerk reaction? Who do you run to? Or perhaps, where do you run to? Is it your own instincts? Maybe you think you're pretty skilled. Maybe it's your friends or significant other. Or maybe it's people you know will tell you exactly what you want to hear. Or maybe you do whatever you can at all costs to distract yourself. You run to Twitter or X or sports. Or you run to Netflix or, Lord help us, video games. Church, I challenge you, the next time you feel anxious, the next time you feel troubled, cry out to the Lord. Our God is there for you. He is your rock in the midst of the storm. He delights in nothing more than to have his children call upon him. You see, our God, he is an intimately personal God. He is a knowable God. He's not some immaterial force. Yes, he knows exactly what's going on in your life. But yes, he wants nothing more than for you to simply talk to him about it. Appeal to his character. Call upon his goodness. Ask for his mercy. Find refuge in his strength and stand amazed in his presence. This is exactly what David is doing right here in our text today. And yet, as we hear David's cries in this psalm echoing and echoing, we begin to hear another voice as well, don't we? Be not deaf to me. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. One scholar points out that surely these are still the supplications of our great high priest. Because that other voice we hear echoing and aligning itself with the king of Israel is indeed no one else but the king of kings himself. Jesus Christ, as he suffered unjustly at the hands of his opponents. And so this psalm is what we would call typologically messianic in that, yes, David is going through this right now, but ultimately its purpose is to point to the coming Messiah and what he would endure. You see, David is here humbly dependent upon God even to the point of death. But how could we ever forget the one whose achievement was similar, yet so much far greater? Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, as the end of the verse says here, if you look there, it says, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Or in other words, without you, there is nothing left for me except death and destruction. Without you, that grave is calling my name. Without you, I am nothing. But something's happened. Something has changed because while, yes, there is nothing left for us but death and destruction, yes, the grave calls our name, and yes, we are indeed nothing but corpses without God, there was one who descended into the grave for us. Amen? One who went down into the pit for us. 
one who defeated death and destruction for us, and one who in one sense became nothing for us. God himself, Jesus Christ, who came despite owing us absolutely nothing, descended from above, entered into this creation, and took on our sinful flesh, becoming sin in our place that we might find forgiveness at the cross, where God's holiness and justice met as Jesus hung there. Oh, but here's the thing, friends. That grave could not hold him. The curse of death had no power over him because he shot right out of that pit. He resurrected on the third day and promises to bring everybody with him who turns from their sins and puts their hope, faith, and trust in him. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, suffering unjustly at the hands of the wicked on our behalf, appealing to the Father's character, crying out in faith to the one who would ultimately deliver him on the cross and as a result deliver us. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our substitute. We can bank our lives upon him, friends. We can bank our deaths upon him. He is the well of living water, of eternal life, the one, the only one who can truly satisfy you. So if you are here today and you are not a Christian, perhaps you are a fake Christian, and deep down you know it. Turn from your sin. Confess it right now. Be what verse 2 says. Be verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. I've heard the gospel all my life, and maybe this is the first time I'm ever hearing it. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy, God. May today be the day when I cry out to you for help. Cry out to him Today, friend, right now, turn from your sin and place your hope and trust in him. Don't leave here without talking to someone. Well, the pastors will be at the the doors at the back after service. There will be people all around you who would love to talk to you. Don't leave here today without talking to someone. I implore you. A quick note here on David's lifting of hands, you'll see. Uh, This is a common way of referring to intimate prayer. It's basically an act of desperation, of total reliance upon God. It's essentially self-abandonment. And what these verses are giving us is a great contrast between the pit and the most holy sanctuary. On one, uh, with one you're in the ground on your own, but with the Lord you are set apart like Him, seated on high in His glorious presence forevermore. That's what this is talking about here, being totally dependent upon God and His unshakable peace in the midst of a world that is falling apart all around us. As you find refuge in His holiness, as you find refuge in His steadfastness, as you find refuge in His utter set-apartness until you see Him face to face. Here and now, communing with God in prayer, there and then communing with God in His presence forevermore. What should Christians do in times of trouble? Point number one, appeal to God's character. Point number two, trust in God's justice. There it says, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. 
Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Essentially what David is saying here is, Lord, when you judge the world for its wickedness, have mercy on me. Don't lump me in with everybody else. Though David, like I've said, is talking about his particular situation here, the particular situation he's facing. You see, on that day, on Judgment Day, when the Lord Jesus returns, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a solemn separation. One piece of imagery the Bible uses is a shepherd with his staff separating the sheep from the goats. Another image is the the difference between wheat and chaff. Chaff is basically like the protective casing around wheat that it's no good and only fit to be burned. Another image is one of a massive net being cast and catching all sorts of fish. Then the fishermen bring it upon the shore to collect the good fish into baskets and then take the bad or useless fish and collect them into trash bins. Friends, this is what it's going to be like on that final day. The Lord Jesus, who knows those who have turned from their sin and put their trust in Him, as well as knowing those who have not and continue to cling to their sin, He is set to return and conduct that very solemn separation. And what is the X factor? What causes one to be dragged off and the other to be preserved for glory. Well, while Jesus is the answer for judgment, friends, he is also the answer for salvation. Nothing else will do. Nothing else than the mercy of God in saving those who turn from their sins and believe in Jesus. So church members, visitors, who do you look like right now? A sheep or a goat? Wheat or chaff? Useful or disposable? Looking more and more like Jesus or looking less and less like Him? There is grace here for you today. Leave your sins behind and run to Jesus today. David is saying here, Lord, because of your mercy, I don't belong with the workers of evil. I belong with you. Please make it so. Now get this, the workers of evil here being referenced that David is talking about. He he says in the very next line, if you look there, they're being defined as those who, quote, speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Another way of saying this is that they're double-tongued. They're deceitful in their speech. They say one thing, but they do the exact other. They flatter you to your face, but then they gossip about you relentlessly when you're not around. They're insincere. They're fake. You can't trust them. Again, I will ask, brothers and sisters, because I love you, which one are you? Do you sound more like the one this is being done against? Or are you the one more likely to be found engaging in this kind of behavior? Search your heart. These are the questions you need to be asking yourself. How long has that been going on? Do you need to tell that story? 
Do you need to tell that joke? Are you building others up or are you tearing them down explicitly or implicitly? Do you look just like the world? Commit today to changing. By the power of His Spirit, make today the day you commit to putting it all to death. Don't put up with it anymore. Confess it to somebody this week. Stop making light of it. For your eternal good and for His glory, I pray. In verse 4, we read, Give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands and render to them their due reward. Basically, what David is saying here is, hold them accountable, please. Like I said earlier, I keep seeing evil prosper across the face of this world. Hold them accountable. Give them what they deserve. Better yet, give them what they're asking for. Give them what they've asked for their whole life. Last week in my pastoral prayer, I prayed for everyone in our society who has influence over public thought. And now today, that's so many different avenues. That's the news media, that's social media, that's influencers, professors and teachers, government officials, and so on and so forth. And we ask together that the Lord would use them to restrain evil rather than to perpetuate it. And in a world right now where it seems impossible to know what's actually true, what's actually accurate, indeed, it's exhausting. It's it's really sad, and yet it's also not surprising, friends. Humans have always sought to twist and manipulate and use other people to the fullest extent in order to get what they really want, in order to champion their own self-interest. Even in the Sunday seminar we've been working through over the past two months or so, you know, that this is what we've been seeing. I'll tell you, I find great hope in Paul's declaration in 2 Timothy chapter 3. What Paul's doing in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is he's encouraging, he's cautioning Timothy, his younger brother in the faith, Timothy is going to be responsible for taking the gospel to this next generation. And what Paul writes to him concerning the last days, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, essentially the weakest people in society. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But, and this is the great hope here, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. The Apostle Paul here is trusting in God's justice, just as David did. Finally, David writes in verse 5, he says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more. You know what this sounds a lot like? This language in this final piece? This is Romans 1 language. 
This is Romans 1 language, the great indictment of humanity. If you want to go ahead and turn there, there, feel free. You don't have to, but Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18 through 21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The error in Psalm 28 and in Romans 1, they refuse to acknowledge God. They are the God of their lives. They determine who they are. They dictate what is true. They worship themselves. And God will judge them for it. He will tear them down and He will give them not another breath of life. And friends, this should be a great hope for us today, Christians. I appreciate the humility in thinking, oh, that's so sad that these people will be destroyed. But Christian, that should be great hope for you because we delight in righteousness just as our God does. We delight in justice just as our God does. God will destroy every evil on this earth. That is good news. He will purge all of it. None of it will stand. Genocide, slavery, human trafficking, abuse, corruption, all of it will be burned. All of it will be destroyed. And we ought to take joy in this hopeful end, friend. Amen? Whatever evil may be discouraging you today at the hands of others, the hands of this world, trust in God's justice. That's the main point of these verses. I met with some of you guys as a means for um, helping me prepare this sermon, and I'm so thankful for that time, and I'm so thankful for you. One of you asked me, why is it trust in God's justice? Why not something like anticipate or wait for God's justice? And I think that's a great point, but I think it's the last part of verse 5, if you see it there. He will tear them down. This isn't wishful thinking by David. No, this is trust in God's promises. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But before we get too excited, again, Christian, I must ask, are you marked by regarding the works of God? Is regarding the works of the Lord a regular thing in your life? A regular habit? Or is that something completely foreign and strange to you? How many of your past prayers have been answered? And have you taken the time to recount them and praise the Lord for His faithfulness? Maybe are you even praying at all for the works of the Lord in recounting His wondrous deeds? As theologian Michael Reeves put it, prayerlessness is practical atheism. But friends, if you look closely at the text, have you noticed a particular pattern in this section thus far? Works. 
deeds. Verse 3, workers of evil. Verse 4, give to them according to their work, according to their evil deeds, according to the work of their hands. Verse 5, they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. As most of us are aware right now, it's been a tough job market over the past year. It's been uh, uh, brutal for some of us. Many of us have been on the hunt to one degree or another. Application after application. Rejection after rejection. Interview after interview, on and on, and then it's back to the drawing board, back to the drawing board, back to the drawing board. More edits to the resume, hoping this time something will catch the recruiter's eye. But here's the thing about resumes. You basically get to pick and choose what goes on them. All right? Executed this program with these kinds of results. Led this initiative, resulting in this much savings. You know what you're not going to add? Failed miserably on this project after a breakdown in communication. That was my fault. Treated this person poorly when I didn't get my way. Wasted this much money thinking I was really on to something. You get to pick and choose. You know what you don't get to pick and choose? Is what's on your spiritual resume. Everything you do is etched in stone on there. There's no erasing it. There's no editing it. There's no making up for it. And God is the record keeper. You may try and highlight all the ways you've served in different avenues, all the good you tried to do. But at the end of the day, when everything you've ever done is bullet pointed out like that, is laid bare before the judge, well, honest question, what are you deserving of? What am I deserving of? Who is going to come calling you? I'll tell you who. Death will come calling you. Destruction will come calling you. You see, the beauty of the gospel, friends, is that when you turn from your sins and you place your hope and trust in Jesus, when you show up for that interview with God and you present your spiritual resume with everything on it, everything you've ever done, everything you will do, all the ways you've ever failed and fallen short, all the secrets you hope will never get out, What do you expect he's going to do to you? People will say, only God can judge me, to which the Bible replies, yeah, that should really scare you. As you await his final rejection, as you await his final judgment in your application for eternal life, he says, I've seen you've been perfect. I see you've done everything I've ever asked of you. I see that you've been obedient at every single stage of your life. To which you'd have to say to yourself, well, yikes, he's got the wrong resume. And in a great deal of embarrassment and sorrow, you would have to inform him of that. But as he turns that resume around to you and you see the name on it as Jesus Christ, it all starts to make sense. Because he has the right resume. He has the right list of works. 
And because of the glorious news of the gospel, when he asks if it belongs to you, you are able to truthfully, you are able to joyfully reply to him with a certain yes. Judgment is coming. And yet judgment has already come. For all who believe in Jesus, your judgment fell upon him that day on the cross. But for all who do not, for all who refuse, for all who say, no, you actually have the wrong resume, I don't believe that. Here, here's my list of works. We're told very clearly that your judgment is coming for you. And the only thing sparing you from that today is God's grace in giving you yet another day to exchange your works for His. And this brings us straight into our third point for today. What should Christians do in times of trouble? Point number one, appeal to God's character. Point number two, trust in God's justice. Point number three, rejoice in God's deliverance. Rejoice in God's deliverance. What I mean by this bringing straight into our third point is that the only way we can go from verse 5 to verse 6 is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because left to ourselves, left to our natural state, we do not regard the works of the Lord. And we are heading for divine judgment. But with the gospel, we're lifted from spiritual death to spiritual life. With the gospel, that divine judgment has already been consumed. And with the gospel, and only with the gospel, we are able to cry, Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Amen? Which is again why I'm saying this psalm points to far more than just being what's going on here with David. You'll notice that verses 6 and 7 are on rejoicing. Whereas verses 8 and 9 are on God's power for deliverance. Hence our third point for today. Rejoice in God's deliverance. And surely in verse 6 and 7, David is able to proclaim these things. Not just because of who God is, but also because of what God has done. There's all of these new worship songs that focus on praising God for who He is, which is obviously important. But equally important, friends, is praising God for what He has done. Yes, our God is infinitely loving, but also, yes, our God is so loving that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We ought to praise God for His mercy in sending Jesus. Jesus is our present and future hope. Jesus is not just the means by which our prayers for mercy are answered. He is the answer to our prayers for mercy. In the worst kinds of trouble, especially the kind of trouble we've brought on ourselves in because of our sin. Who God is and what he's done should give us great courage and comfort today, Christian. I'd encourage you, church, this week even, spend some time in your quiet times. Or after dinner when you put the kids to bed. Spend just a few minutes thinking of all the ways the Lord has cared for you. All the ways He has provided for you. All the answers he has, to prayer He has done for you each and every step of the way, even in the ones He said no to. Even in some of your hardest times. In the ways you asked for and in the ways you didn't. In the ways you can see and in the ways that you can't. Talk with your spouse about it this week. Make it a point to share in your discipling relationships. Remind each other of these things because looking back on the prayers that God has answered allows us to look forward to the promises He will fulfill. 
There's never a time you can't come to him, never a time you can't call out to him as our loving and heavenly father. I think of times when I'm at my absolute busiest, for example. I might be sitting at our dining room table trying to work and get stuff done as quickly as possible. I'm totally locked in. But then I just notice Connor, my one-year-old son, slowly and surely scoot his way over to me from across the room. He'll come right up to the edge of my chair, and he'll just kind of raise his hands ever so slightly so as to want to be held. And suddenly, for me, nothing else matters in that moment. As my precious son, as my beloved child, he has direct access to me at all times. He has direct access to be held and heard anytime. And friends, so it is with us and our Heavenly Father. He sees you, He hears you, and He holds you at all times, every time. In verse 7, as David sings of the Lord's strength, he says, In Him my heart trusts, in Him I am helped, in Him my heart exalts. What helpful words for us even today as we gather to praise our God through song. Such an important reminder to not just show up and mindlessly sing words that we won't even remember by the time we get back into our car. The Bible tells us to sing hymns and spiritual songs to one another as a means for building each other up. And friends, our strength as a church is our unity and our dependence upon His strength and in His power to save. And so where are we drawing our strength from today? Where are we drawing our strength from? Is it our fitness plans? Is it our bank accounts? Is it our portfolios? Is it the next compliment that you're so desperate to receive? Or is it in the strength of the Lord? The strength of the Lord who has overcome the world. Are you helped by his absolute sturdiness today? Are you thankful for his power to save today? Because he is the only one who you can truly depend on day in and day out in times of trouble and times of peace. You'll notice that verse 7 is very personal. And what I mean by that is if you look closely, it says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to Him. But then, if you look at verse 8 and 9, it goes from personal or individual to corporate. Says the Lord is the strength of his people in verse 8. Oh, save your people in verse 9. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And make no mistake about it, I think it's no accident that the bond between being the strength of his people in verse 8 and being the salvation of his people in verse 9 is none other than his anointed. As David, as king, is strengthened and delivered, the whole kingdom is helped and carried. And as Jesus is strengthened and delivered, so too the greater kingdom from all time and in every place is helped and carried. What does this idea that God doesn't just save individuals, but that he saves the people, what should that mean to us? Surely this is yet another biblical nail in the coffin of quote-unquote lone wolf Christianity. Or I love Jesus but hate religion. Or I don't need to be part of a church to be a Christian. No, Christ didn't just come to save a bunch of individuals. He came to purchase a people. His new covenant is with a people, just as it was with Israel. 
It says the Apostle Peter writes, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you, that's a plural you there, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does this idea of God saving a people mean to you? What should it mean to us? Have you ever stopped to think about that? One temperature check might be just looking at the subjects and the contents of your prayers. Are your prayers only about you, for you, maybe for your family? When was the last time you prayed for other members of the congregation? Thankfully, we have several tools here at New Covenant Baptist Church to do so. We have our membership directory, which you can see each and every individual member. I'm so impressed by the work Key and Stephen and all you guys have done. It's amazing. You can click on a button, and it will add a contact with all of the information to your phone, their address, everything. So thank you, guys. We also have a weekly newsletter that goes out on Wednesday nights, and we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to be praying for one another. You'll see a couple of members or a few members highlighted each week with specific prayer points that you can be praying through. We also have early morning prayer every Wednesday and Saturday where they make it a point to be praying for the church. Another way is when we take the Lord's Supper together, which, Lord willing, we hope to do next week. While, yes, definitely, do take that time to confess your sin to God and to reflect on the truths of the gospel. Also take care to look around at His people Look around at the people Christ has died for and united you two in this local church, in this local body, as we rejoice in God's deliverance together. Amen? God saves a people as his own possession. My final point here, and as we conclude, while yes, we ought to get outside of ourselves and take a good look at the people around us in here, The Bible also tells us that his people are out there as well. In Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul is told by God to not be afraid by all the obstacles he's facing and to go on sharing the good news of the gospel because God has plenty of his elect out there who will hear the gospel and will respond to the gospel. They will hear the good news and they will cry out for mercy. They will love and appeal to God's character. They will trust in his judgment. They will rejoice in his deliverance. He promises us this. And what greater motivation, friends, than do we have as we rejoice in God's deliverance in our own times of trouble to also witness those who do not yet know God come in and do the same just as we've already witnessed with several of you who have become members of this local church. In the same ways our mourning is able to be turned to dancing, as Psalm 30 puts it, how many out there who do not yet know God need this kind of hope in their mourning, in their times of trouble? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, friends, of whom you and I are the foremost. And so may we stop at nothing until all the people of God, everyone who has been saved and everyone who will be saved, all together rejoice in the Lord's deliverance. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. God, we who were once so far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
we who were once not your people, who have been now made your people forever. We praise you, God, for who you are. We praise you, God, for what you've done. We praise you, God, for your sovereign plan and for your sovereignty in our salvation. Give us the strength and courage to hope in you when our circumstances might tell us otherwise. Help us to leave here today refreshed in the truth of the gospel and eager to share such good news with those you place in our lives this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.